The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. I do hope that you have your Bible with you. You'll need it, as we'll read several scriptures in today's message. And we always want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, And it's important so that you can check the preacher. So you can see, make sure that I'm telling you the truth. And so... If you don't have a copy of the Word, just raise your hand. Our ushers are happy to give you one. Just, yeah, just raise your hand. Uh, Ushers, would you notice here? And we need uh, some Bibles up here, if we could, please. I said our ushers would be glad. They don't look too happy about it at all. Uh, (laughs) No, right up here, lean on the the third row there. We need some Bibles. Yeah, we, we love everybody to follow along in God's Word. So I'll give you just a minute to find that scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And our subject today is the beginning of this uh, second chapter in Second Thessalonians. And this is about Paul's concern for the confusion that the Thessalonian church was in about the timing of Christ's return. And if you've been with us in our study for these past several months, uh, looking at these two letters, you know that we've spent much time discussing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is because the Thessalonians were confused about those times and when Christ would come. And the cause of this confusion was there was persecution that they were going through. God's people have endured persecution since the beginning. And especially New Testament believers have experienced much trouble from demonic forces uh, throughout the history of the church that have tried to destroy God's people. And although persecution has always been in the world, the end times persecution will be the very worst. And because these people in Thessalonica were constantly embattled and they saw no relief from their persecution, they were sure that they were living in the end times. And of course, if that was true, then the promises of God were not true because God promised that his people would not go through that terrible time. Instead, Jesus would return and he would deliver them from God's wrath upon the world. And that promise is still true to us today. We won't go through these end times, not the terrible times of tribulation. We live in this New Testament era, in these times, and this letter is very important for us as God's people that we neither lose hope like the Thessalonians did. And so no matter how things, uh, how bad things get, and many people are afraid today. I mean, you, you've been watching the news and you see what's going on with coronavirus and people are panicking over this thing and people think these are terrible times. Maybe these are the end times. Well, you can trust this, that God's people will not go through the tribulation of the end times and we can depend on God's promise to deliver us from it. Now, last week we talked about three ways that Satan tried to deceive the church, this church in Thessalonica, and to ruin their hope of Christ's second coming. Now, if you'll look at verses 1 and 2 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll just take a moment to review three areas of Satan's deceit. 
The apostle says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, Paul reminds them of what he told them in the first letter, that's First Thessalonians. He reminds them that Christ is coming, and the church, he says, will be gathered to him. And in the first verse, this coming of the Lord, that is the parousia, that's Greek parousia, and it refers to the rapture when Christ comes for his people, and we find that in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. And he tells the people not to be troubled. He says they're not to let anything, not let anyone deceive them because deceivers cannot change the truth of what he had told them before. His letters are the same as God speaking to them. Now here we see there, there were three areas of, of deception, three avenues. The first is a spirit. Paul said don't be troubled by a spirit. And that could be a demonic spirit. But most likely, it refers to false teachers. In other parts of the Bible, false teachers are called spirits, evil spirits. And these may be Satan's prophets that had infiltrated the church and they were teaching lies. Then next, he says, you don't need to be troubled by words. That refers to preaching, refers to sermons and to messages that falsely exposit the word of God. And this is what lying prophets often do. They take the Bible, they take it out of its context, they mix things up that are in the Bible, they add their opinions to it, or they take away from God's Word, or they ignore portions that clearly deny what they say. Sometimes they will mistranslate the Word. Sometimes they will substitute for it. And we see that often today. We see it with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Both of them use copies of the Bible, but both add to the words. They add their own writings, and they take them as more authoritative than the Scriptures themselves. And this is the problem of, of, that we find also in, in, in Roman Catholicism. It does it by their traditions, by their edicts, by their encyclicals, by councils. And so they think it's all right to change the Word of God to fit their purposes. And then there's the third attack. And perhaps this is the clincher. Maybe this is the most serious thing that, that caused the problem. This is the most convincing and confusing. Paul said, don't be troubled, don't be deceived. If you receive a letter that someone claims came from me and my companions. Now the people trusted Paul. And if someone forged a letter and said, this is what Paul said... And it was different from what Paul said than that had said before. Then, of course, that would be confusing. Now, the thing that Paul taught is that God is immutable. That word just simply means that God is unchangeable. That God's word doesn't change. So those who take this and say, well, we can change that. We can add something to it. We can take something away from it. We can put our opinions in it. And we have the authority to do that. Paul says, God doesn't work that way. God never contradicts what he said. And if Paul was to write another letter, it wouldn't contradict what he said earlier because God never changes his mind. And remember, what Paul wrote was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These aren't his words. These are the words that God gave him to speak to the people. 
Now, if you hear a preacher say then, well, today things are different. We're living in a different world. We live under different rules. The Bible is outdated. The Bible needs to be updated. Don't believe that. Because God's word is settled forever. And that was said by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Not one word that God spoke will change because God doesn't change. So the Bible is not going to change. This is God's authority for your life. And it will be until you meet Jesus face to face. Well, you notice the title of our message is The Apostasy of the Antichrist. And I use this title because the next part of chapter 2, in this part, Paul gives them proof that they couldn't be living at the end. Now, we know that today because we're way past that time. And we know they weren't living in the end, but they didn't know it. And Paul says, there are some things that are going to happen. You can't be living in the tribulation because you haven't seen the Antichrist. The main character of the end times is this person who will be known as the Antichrist. And so in verses 3 through 12, Paul outlines four reasons that they couldn't be living in the end times. Now, we can't cover all those reasons today, and I don't intend to, because we're going to stall out on one of these as we discuss the work and the character of the Antichrist. But all four reasons that Paul gives are tied to the appearance of this man and what he will do in the tribulation and what God will do to him and to those who follow him. Now, first, Paul tells them, you can't be living in the end times because of what happens in the first part of verse number 3. He says, let no man deceive you by any means. That's the way he starts. That means that don't let them deceive you by those three methods of false teachers, of false expositions, of false letters, or by any other tactic that Satan might use. Let no man, let no person deceive you by any means for that day. That is, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, will not come except there come a falling away first. So the first reason that Paul gives that they could not be living in the end times tribulation is that the tribulation, number one, the tribulation is accompanied by worldwide rebellion. The tribulation is accompanied by worldwide rebellion. There will be a great falling away there will be rejection of any recognition of the one true God. Now, if you look back in chapter 1 of the first letter, Paul commended the church because he said, you have turned from idols to serve the one true living God. Since the first century, uh, the Christian church has grown exponentially so that much of the world has been turned away from the pantheistic worship of idols. Now, of course, there is some idolatry still in the world. Uh, there is idolatry in Eastern religions. But today, across the world, there are thousands of Christian missionaries that preach the truth. There are many that come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you remember, there is an event that will precede a great falling away and return to idolatry. And that great event is the rapture. That is, before the tribulation, the church will be taken out of the world, and then missionary work, the work of the church will cease. Without the church, worldwide evangelism can't be done, not as we see it now. And without the truth, people are always susceptible to lies and believing lies. And yet there will be 
a witness in the world, there still will be because there will be salvation of Jews. But that witness will be greatly suppressed by persecuting God-haters. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Jews will be forced into desert places where they will hide out and God will protect them from the, from the death of the Antichrist. Well, I don't have any intentions of being an end times prophet. That's not why I'm teaching this. So I'm not going to tell you that conditions today mean that Christ's coming is just around the corner. I'm not going to tell you that if we just wait a few more weeks, a few more months, maybe a year or two, Christ will come. I can't tell you that because the Bible doesn't tell us when he's going to come. But I can tell you that we can see how apostasy, that is a turning away from God, can very quickly arise and how there can be complete rejection of God and it could happen in just a very, very limited limited amount of time. And we can understand that just by surveying changes that have taken place in our country. That it's only taken about 50 years for this country to nearly abandon all Christian principles. Today we practice things that are unthinkable. The Bible's worst sins of sexual perversion are celebrated with parades. The worst moral decadence is considered to be freedom to sin without restraint. Murder of the unborn, that's the woman's right, even if her baby is viable and ready to be delivered. God's Word says that sin is slavery, that it destroys, that sin destroys society. But that's where we are in less than 50 years. There is a great falling away, and so to speak, there is rejection of God in our country. Because this country that used to send missionaries all across the world with the truth, we're now sending out a false gospel of materialism rather than the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's people in America that need to be evangelized. But it's not just in this country. There isn't a European country that's better. And in most cases, they're, they're worse, and some of them are on the cutting edge of the latest methods of destroying Christianity. England and Scotland that gave this country the gospel. Today, you'll find that churches there are shuttered, and the people are among the hardest to evangelize with the gospel. But folks, even with all of that, there is still the church in the world. The gospel is still being preached in other places. We can't say that the entire world experiences a falling away of the end times. I mean, here we are living in America and Western civilization, and we're a people that's now eaten up with self and with materialism, while in third world countries, the gospel thrives. You see, when people begin to depend on self, as Americans are dependent on self, then they stop seeking God. They think we don't really need God. We can do this by ourselves. But you take other countries and they realize we're poor and we have no hope but God. We, we have no, no way to, to lift ourselves up. We need something. These are people that believe the gospel. They begin to understand they do need Jesus Christ. The prosperity gospel that's preached today is a false gospel. It doesn't really work uh, among affluent Americans. And it certainly won't work for people that are poor in third world countries because they have no hope to gain the prosperity that's being preached today. That's not the gospel of Christ. So it was very easy for the Thessalonians to be confused because they could see only what was happening locally. 
They, they, they were in persecution. Their neighbors that believed in Christ were in persecution. They saw what happened in their city. And so it was easy for them to think, well, we must be living in the end times. And what they didn't know is that Christianity was thriving. Now, they will come to know that, as Paul teaches the church. They didn't know that, that the church was advancing and Paul could say to them, no, no, you aren't living in the end times because people are everywhere coming to Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire was being evangelized. Paul was starting ch more churches. And that won't happen in the end times. Some will be saved, as we've mentioned, but with the church gone and oppression so great, those who come to Christ will be killed for even mentioning his name. And who is it that does this? Who, who, who uh, promotes the destruction of believers in that time? Well, it's this person. It is the Antichrist. And that's the second reason they couldn't be living in the end times. Why? Once again, look at verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Reason number two, that they weren't living in the tribulation. The tribulation is accompanied by the revelation of the Antichrist. The tribulation is accompanied by the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, this is where we're going to stall a little bit and we're going to camp on this. I want to talk to you about this person, the Antichrist. He is the main character of the tribulation. And with the church out of the way at that time, remember we said the church will be raptured, it will be gone. And with the church out of the way, the gospel is suppressed, Christian influence is practically non-existent, and the world will be ripe for a leader who will deceive and make himself God. The world then will be ready for someone to substitute for God and make them think that he is God. And he'll fit their idea of what they think God should be. And isn't that always a problem? I mean, we are, we're still dealing with that problem or are dealing with that problem now. People want to make God in their image. They want God to be what they want him to be. And that's why they don't often believe the Bible and what God says because that just doesn't fit what they think who they think God is. So they want to make God who they want him to be. And I, and I think it's easier for us to imagine how that can happen, easier for us than early Christians or even those that lived a century ago, because we live in a technologically advanced and rapidly changing world. The ability to communicate and socialize and for opinions to change worldwide overnight has never been known before like it is today. Now all it takes is for a video to go viral. Millions latch onto it and that becomes the buzz. It's everywhere on social media and out of that opinions are formed. We live in the 24-hour news cycle. You know, a hundred years ago, a virus in, in China, we'd never know about that, would we? Not until it was actually here on our shores and people were getting sick. Will we ever know about it? Now it's all across the news cycle, isn't it? 24 hours, it's all over the world. That's, that's what we're living in now. And that's how information gets out so quickly. So what happens in your backyard today can be known across the world by tomorrow or even faster than that. And so when someone tells a lie, that lie travels. 
People believe the lies. Fake news goes out and people believe it's true. God-haters count on that. Did you know it? God-haters count on lies. Those that try to influence government agendas can make our politicians think that there's a groundswell of approval for every godless act on planet Earth. And then our politicians go into action. We're going to make that happen. Because there's so many people that want it. And they don't realize a lie has gone out. Fake news has gone out. And devil has his way. You know how that works. If you look at a political map of our country, what do you see? Well, you have the blue coast, don't you? Each side of the country is a, has a blue coast and uh, there's a sea of red that's in between. And unfortunately, in the blue coast, you find the home of the tech giants. That's the home of liberals. It's the home of the promoters of LBGTQ. It's the home of perversion. It's the home of Hollywood. And what comes out of that? Well, there's a flood a tidal wave of demonic influence that infiltrates every home in America and many across the world with 24-hour entertainment. You watch any show on television today or any movie and you would be convinced that 98% of America is adulterous, homosexual, transvestite, gender fluid, women that think they're men and men that think they're women. I mean, before Christmas, I was in a Target store the cashier that checked me out was a six-foot man with a beard, wearing a miniskirt and a see-through top. You've seen that stuff. I, I went to Kaiser Pharmacy the other day, and there's another guy. I mean, he was a bruiser, a big man, much taller than me, and I'm six foot four, and he's much taller than me. And uh, he's there, and he's got these muscular arms. He's ugly as homemade sin, and he's in a long dress and carrying a purse. If that's supposed to be a woman, check me out, folks. Check me out of here. The truth is, they aren't women. They're born men. And women who dress like men are born women. And they are male and female at birth, and they stay that way no matter how twisted they're thinking. Anything else is perversion. It's an abomination to God because God made them male and female. Don't listen to anyone who says, Oh, but God made me this way. Not according to Jesus Christ. Jesus said God made them male and female, and the rest of it is sin, and it's the product of a sinful, depraved mind. But let me tell you, that is the world of the Antichrist. That's the world that defies God. It's the world turned upside down where good is called evil and evil is called good. Only problem is there isn't hardly any good. And so evil triumphs in the world is gone mad. Now understand, I'm not predicting anything, but it's that ability to communicate across the world and for things to go viral and to have social apps like Facebook and Instagram uh, and billions that look at that. It's that ability, the technology, that sets the world up for the Antichrist. He will rule and he will watch and he will keep track and he will know where people are and what they're doing and whether they oppose him. Recently, I read an article in the liberal rag, the New York Times, and it, and it talked about all the apps that you put on your cell phone and how all these apps are tracking you. There are terms and conditions that you check off when you install the app. It says, well, we're collecting data anonymously. But the Times proved that by tracking a person to their home, 
and to work every day, even an idiot could identify the person. Now, I, I might get into 666 later, I'm not sure, about the mark of the beast. But it's that worldwide system of knowing everybody and whether they can buy or sell or be permitted to live, that is already upon us. The Antichrist will have all these tools at his disposal. And if, if the world is okay with killing innocent babies, like we are right now, how much of a stretch is it to kill adults? Kill adults that aren't innocent because the Antichrist thinks they are against me. Paul calls him a man of sin. Revelation calls him the beast. He is the son of perdition. That means that though he will rule on this earth, he will be doomed to judgment and everlasting destruction. Well, the big question for everybody is, who is he? Who is the Antichrist? Do we know who he is? Paul didn't. Paul didn't name him. And yet that is the dominant question about the end times. It's always this. Who, who is the Antichrist? Who will that be? And the reason that we don't know is because he hasn't been revealed. We're not living in that time. We're living in the church age. The church is here. And the Antichrist won't be revealed until the church is gone. So when Jesus Christ comes and takes his church out of the world, then the Antichrist will be revealed. Well, I would confess to you that when I watch the Democratic debates... I could easily think that any one of them could be the Antichrist. I mean, the platform is certainly Antichrist. And I wouldn't say that with a Republican. I don't know if I could be a Republican when the best that they can put out. You've seen that. This is not a political game that we're playing in the church. All I'm telling you is that you can't look at the platform of the parties and not clearly identify them as Antichrist. So we end up doing this. We vote for the lesser of evils. Who's, gonna, who's not going to do the worst to us? I mean, that's, that's pretty much how we vote today. Well, I think that preserving this nation is not really high on God's list of priorities. But you know, you can search the Bible through and you'll not find one word about the United States of America. Preserving this country is not God's highest priority, but preserving morality and decency and truth is. And we are absent all of those in our political processes. So if you're worried about politics in America and that's your priority, politics is your priority and you'll sacrifice anything because you just don't like the president that we have, then folks, you've lost touch with the purpose. You've lost touch with the purpose. And I'm not advocating any candidates here. I'm just telling you, if you'll do anything because you hate somebody, because you hate the president, you'll do anything, you'll vote for anything, you'll take anything, you'll take all of it if it's necessary, you'll take all the platform of the Antichrist, killing babies and all of that, if you'll do that just to get rid of the president, you've missed the whole thing. It's another subject, you might say. That's not the subject we're talking about. Well, really it is. It's all part of the processes that will be used by the Antichrist. And guess what? He is neither a Republican nor a Democrat, but he's, he will be beloved by all. He transcends divisive parties. He suits everyone's taste. And that's what he uses to rise to power. At first, he looks good to both Jews and Gentiles. He looks good to Catholics and Protestants. He looks good to Republicans and Democrats. He looks good to Islam. He looks good to Buddhists and to Hindus. He'll be a man expert at getting people on his side. And you know why? It's because the God of this world sets him up. 
People naturally follow the God of this world. And they'll follow the Antichrist because he is their God's man. And I, I think the world will follow him because this world is Satan's dominion. The Bible describes Satan as the God of this world. And so Satan will enter this man and control him. And he'll be the apple of the eye of natural men who are God's enemies. Now let me hang with you here on this point for just a minute. Let me talk about Satan's desire to be embodied. That is Satan's desire to be in a person's body. You sort of get a hint of this in verse number 3. Where it says that the Antichrist is the son of perdition. Now there's only one other place in the Bible where that phrase son of perdition is used. Perdition means eternal punishment. It means destruction. And in Christ's prayer in John 17... Jesus prayed to his heavenly father that, and he said, I have kept all of the disciples. Now we know that God had another plan for another intention for one of the disciples. So actually Jesus said, I've kept all but one. And this is what Jesus said about him in John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, that is with the disciples, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept and none of them is lost, but... The son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the only one lost is the son of perdition. Who was he? You know, that's Judas Iscariot. Centuries before, Judas was prophesied to betray Jesus. Jesus said he was lost, that scripture would be fulfilled. I mean, Judas did what he did because the scripture said that he would do it. Now, he did it. He was willingly did everything that he did, but God knew what he was going to do. The scriptures were fulfilled. And what does the Bible say that Satan did with Judas? We find the answer in John 13, verse 27. This is just before Jesus gave the disciples the Lord's Supper. There it says, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said, that thou doest, do quickly. Satan entered Judas. And Judas got up, he left the meal, and he did this dastardly work of betraying Christ. Now earlier in John 7, Jesus said Judas had a devil. And there are many examples of demon possession in the scriptures, but we don't see this phrase used, that Satan himself entered anyone. But we do find it with both Judas and the Antichrist, and both are called the son of perdition. Now I can tell you the worst two men of all time are Judas and the Antichrist. And the fact that Satan entered Judas and will enter the Antichrist shows that Satan wants to be embodied when the worst of his work needs to be done. Now, Satan is a great counterfeiter. He counterfeits Christ. When God's greatest work needed to be done, you know what happened? The Son of God came, didn't he? And the Son of God became a man. He was God in the flesh. Well, Satan can't do that. He can't become incarnate in the same sense that Jesus was flesh or in the flesh in the way that he came. But Satan is this great counterfeiter who makes it appear that way. And so when Satan wants to do his worst, he personally inhabits a man. Now, to get us back on track with Paul's contention that the tribulation can't be here until the Antichrist is revealed, well, we need to go back in the scriptures and see that this was not something that Paul pulled out of the air. What he said is consistent with Old Testament 
and New Testament scriptures. Paul's not the only one who knew about the Antichrist. John spoke of him in the Revelation and in his other letters as well. And this is what he wrote in 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now when John wrote there, it is the last time, he meant the church age is headed to its conclusion. The church age is the last age before the Antichrist comes. In the last days, the entire church age is characterized by many antichrists. Who are they? Well, that would be the false cults, that would be the false prophets and charismania, all the perversions of doctrine. These are all things from the antichrists that are in the world. But John makes a distinction in the text between many antichrists and the one antichrist that is to come. Now, in John's day, many antichrists were those false spirits, those false prophets that I mentioned. It's people like the Roman emperors who persecuted Christians. But he doesn't identify any of the Roman emperors as the, as the one antichrist of the tribulation. And that shows that the readers were already familiar with this from Old Testament scriptures and what from Paul had earlier written. And so we find several references to the Antichrist throughout the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the prophet who said the most about this was Daniel. Now I want you to turn to Daniel. And we're going to start and look through here just a little bit. We'll start with Daniel chapter 7. And if you want to make a note for yourself, this is the revelation of the Antichrist in prophecy. All prophecy in the Old Testament is trustworthy. It's proved itself to be. But reading Daniel, this is a very, very special prophecy because Daniel was one of the most precise prophets. He knew exactly how long it would be before the Old Testament era would end. He knew when Jesus would come that first time. He knew when Jerusalem would be destroyed. He knew how long the tribulation would be. And Daniel also predicted the career of the Antichrist. And his prophecy was quoted by Jesus in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen. Now, if Jesus trusted Daniel, you can be sure you can trust him. Jesus trusted him because he's the Son of God. And it was the Son of God who spoke to Daniel through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to look at verses 7 and 8 in the 7th chapter. There are several elements to this prophecy that time doesn't permit me to explain, but I might take up some later. Daniel 7, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions... And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. Behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. That's, that's all kind of cryptic, isn't it? What does he mean by that? Well, let me explain. I'll explain just this much, because I said there's several things here that we don't have time for. He talks about a fourth beast. The fourth beast means the Antichrist. And it means that the Antichrist rises as a successor to other great world empires. That is, there were three that are before him. He, he's more powerful than those that came before Daniel gives hints of his abilities here. He is strong. His government is strong. And then it talks about these great iron teeth of the beast. 
And that's a way of expressing his power and his ferocity. And there you see horns in the passage. That's one of the Bible's ways of speaking of power. In our afternoon series on the tabernacle, we've talked about horns on the altar of God. And those horns are an indication of God's power. Well, these horns are an indication of the Antichrist power because he has the backing of Satan there behind him. So the horns then, these are confederated powers of earthly governments that are consolidated under the Antichrist. And remember, everybody's going to follow him. All the nations of the world, all the governments of this world will follow the Antichrist. And then the beast that Daniel saw in the vision has the eyes of a man. And the indication of the text is the beast has many eyes, multiple eyes. The Antichrist mimics the true Christ. Now this is all figurative, of course. He mimics the true Christ with many eyes. That's the Bible's way of saying that he is intelligent, that he's full of wisdom. We see that imagery in Revelation chapter 4 in God's throne where there are angelic beings with many eyes. And that's an indication of God's wisdom. And this is what Satan does. He mimics, he mimics God. He mimics Jesus Christ. And he does it through this man. Then Daniel said the Antichrist will speak great things. He's a smooth talker. He's convincing because his oratory will be superb. He doesn't stumble over words like I do. Remember what people said about Paul? They said he didn't speak very well. They contrasted his oratory to the Greek and Roman philosophers. And they say, well, he can't match that. Well, Paul's speech might have been contemptible. But because he spoke with the power of God, people that heard believed. Well, the Antichrist has a natural ability to speak. He has the power of Satan behind him. And so people are mesmerized by good speaking ability. The Antichrist has that in abundant supply. Now, if you go over to chapter 8, and verse number 23, Daniel 8, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, the king of fierce countenance, that means a fierce face, will stand up. He stands out among all the rest of the leaders of this world. Ferocity, that does not mean that he's ugly and frightening because most likely he'll be a very attractive man. But the works that come from him are ferocious. His deception is amazingly fierce in what it will do to unsuspecting people. And notice that the text says he understands dark sentences. That's likely a reference to the occult. That he interprets with demonic power. He's like a medium. He's like a bridge between the dark, unseen spiritual world and the physical world. And he uses that uncommon ability to see things that other people can't see, to do things that other people can't do. And then let me give you some more characteristics. You can read much, much more in chapter 9, but let's skip over and go to chapter 11. Here we find more about him in chapter 11. In verse number 36... Daniel 11, verse number 36. And the king shall do according to his will. That's speaking of the Antichrist. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. And shall prosper till the, till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, 
nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, you're, you're, I know you're not over in Second Thessalonians, but our text over there sounds very much like this. It says in the fourth verse, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I'll have more to say later about the Antichrist and the temple. But you can see that the Apostle Paul took his information out of Daniel. Or he received it from the same source that Daniel received it, the Holy Spirit. And both say that the Antichrist will push himself up and will declare himself to be God. Says he doesn't regard the God of his fathers. Many believe that that's an indication that he'll be a Jew. He doesn't follow the God of his fathers. That would be of the Jews. And if the Antichrist is going to fool the Jews, it may stand to reason or make sense that he would be a Jew because the Jews won't accept anyone but a Jewish Messiah. And then in Revelation 6, uh, we won't turn to that, but in Revelation 6, the Antichrist is seen as a rider on a white horse. Uh, You've seen the graphic that we're using for our series. There's a white horse and there's a purpose for that. But they, it's not about the Antichrist, though. Uh, the Antichrist is a rider on a white horse, and he comes to conquer without warfare. Who does that mimic? Well, it mimics the true Christ, because that white horse that we want to picture is the one that Christ rides on. That comes out of Revelation chapter 19. And then I find this to be very interesting. It, it said there, he has no desire for women. What does that mean? Well, perhaps it could mean he's a homosexual. And isn't it strange that being homosexual is now trendy? What's the sin that gets repeatedly mentioned in Scripture? What is the worst sin that gets repeatedly mentioned in Scripture? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the worst. And the Antichrist does the worst. He is the worst. And I'll just leave you to think about that. Now, one more comment and we'll finish for today. Back in Daniel chapter 8, verse number 25. Daniel 8, 25. And through his policy, also he shall craft, through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. Isn't that a strange statement? By peace he shall destroy many? He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, what all this means is that the Antichrist will come and he will conquer without weapons. He doesn't come with an army to fight against the armies of the world and take power that way, but rather he comes in peace. He never fires a shot. Uh, But the way that he maintains peace, his peace, and the way that he keeps his position and enforces his agenda is to destroy many. So he kills to maintain power. Eventually, at the end of the tribulation, he will meet the prince of princes. And this is the only one that he can't defeat. Now, for sure, there is much interest and speculation about the Antichrist. Paul said he won't come. He won't be revealed. Not until the church is gone from this world. Oh, you say, well, will we meet the Antichrist? The answer to that is yes, but not until we've been glorified in heaven. And you know how we meet him? 
At the end of the tribulation, all those who believe in Jesus Christ will come back to this earth and we will fight with our true king, the king of heaven, and we will defeat the Antichrist. In Revelation 19.14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Christians will never follow the wrong white horse. We're always going to follow Jesus Christ. And he will come. He will control the entire universe. He will come to conquer the entire earth. He will establish a righteous kingdom over this entire earth. And it will be the reverse. All the reverse of the Antichrist and his reign. Make no mistake about this, folks. Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. And this is the reason you must know him. You must listen to him and you must know about the cross of Jesus Christ and where he died for sin. You must believe this to rule and reign forever with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the great King of Kings, the one who will conquer all evil and bring peace over this entire world. Lord, when Jesus gave his model prayer... He said, pray that God's kingdom will come. And we do pray this today. We pray your kingdom will come. We look for the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And then we know, Lord, when we're taken out of this world and we're taken into heaven and we're glorified with you, that then we'll come back. We'll come back with our great king. And then you will set us up as rulers over this entire world until you decide to destroy it with the might of your power. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. I ask that you work in the heart of some person today. Help them to realize that they need you as Savior. Help them to understand they must repent of their sins, recognize that we have sinned against the Holy God, and we have no recourse for those sins except to believe in Jesus Christ who died to take them all away from us. We trust you, Lord, for that. Nothing that we do, nothing in our hands we bring, we cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and trust what he did to save us from our sins. Only that, only that will grant us access to the holy God of heaven. Thank you, Lord. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why didn't we speak about Lent and entering the season of Lent? And I'll tell you this, a very good reason why we don't. And that's because God said you never had to give up anything to have favor with him. The favor that you have comes from what Christ did for you, not what you give up for him. And once you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then you'll give up everything for him. That's what a true Christian is. So we don't do it 40, 46 days out of the year. We do it 365 because we believe in Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org